the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Will Warshower, President and CEO of TechnoServe, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. TechnoServe is a leader in harnessing the power of the private sector to help people lift themselves out of poverty. Impact Matters, an organization that rates nonprofits based upon their impact, has rated TechnoServe the number one nonprofit in cost effectiveness when it comes to reducing poverty. And here to tell us about how they do it, it's a pleasure to have the president and CEO of TechnoServe, Will Warshower. Good evening, Will, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Happy to be here, Denver. You know, many listeners may not be familiar with TechnoServe. How and when did the organization get started, and what's your mission? Uh, You're right. We're one of the best kept secrets in international development. Uh, We were founded 51 years ago uh, to provide business solutions to poverty. So our founder, Ed Bullard, uh, had that insight, and that was a radical notion 50 years ago. Uh, People didn't talk about profits and development in the same sentence. Uh, It's become uh, the middle of the mainstream now, but uh, we were one of the first to work in that area. Um, And we have grown. We're working in 29 countries, uh, reaching millions of people every year, uh, working with small farmers because most of the world's poor earn their living through agriculture and also working with uh, entrepreneurs and uh, helping people uh, get jobs and the various ways that people earn more and become prosperous. You know, there's a tendency, Will, to look at governments and foreign aid as the key drivers to lifting people out of poverty, but increasingly business is becoming more important. In fact, would it be fair to say that it has become the key driver? Absolutely. And if you look at the statistics, you will see uh, a long time ago in most emerging markets, uh, foreign aid became eclipsed by direct foreign investment. And about two years ago, that even became true for the continent of Africa, where there's more investment dollars flowing in than aid dollars. So the smart people that are thinking about aid and development are thinking about how they can leverage that private sector investment, dynamism, and energy to drive development. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, let's talk about that work. There are three major elements of how you go about doing it. The first is empowering these small-scale farmers and entrepreneurs with the skills and knowledge they're going to need. Now, how do you do how do you provide that? Yeah, whether it's a small farmer or a small business person, we are really uh, trying to help them in three ways. And I should preface that by saying that Although we work with some of the poorest people in the world, we don't give anything away for free. We're even against subsidies. Mm -hmm. And that sounds a little strange, perhaps. But the reason for that is uh, if we can help people get into commercial relationships that really work on straight commercial terms – That's what will last over time, and that's what will scale up. So that is our approach. Uh, A lot of the skills building involves uh, business skills, whether it's a small farmer uh, or a small business person, uh, gaining those basic skills so that he or she can uh, understand and run their business effectively, and then various technical skills, uh, ranging from everything to growing coffee uh, to uh, making soap or, or other products that they may be manufacturing. Do you also help them get access to capital? We do. We don't 
provide any of it directly, mm-hmm. uh, but we uh, do uh, help them uh, access it from a range of institutions, microfinance institutions, uh, credit unions and banks uh, around the world. And we often will advocate at those institutions uh, and help them perhaps develop specialized products. An agricultural loan, for example, can only be paid back after harvest, right. things like that. Yeah, yeah, you're really a catalyst in so many different ways. That's what we aim to be, exactly. And again, it goes with our mission of a focus on long-term impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are a classic sort of teach-them-to-fish organization. Yeah. So that's why we don't want to provide the financing we want to provide. Uh, we want to find commercial uh, organizations to do that. That makes sense. A second important aspect of this work is to strengthen market connections. Now, what's often missing, and what are you able to provide? Uh, yes, and and this is an area where I think uh, the world is changing fast in a way that really advantages the, the small farmer and the small business person. Um, we think about this in terms of a concept called shared value. Mm-hmm. This was put forward by a couple of Harvard Business School professors in a seminal article about a decade ago, uh, Michael Porter and Mark Kramer. Mark's been on the show. Great. And um, they had the insight that there are a growing set of opportunities where the business opportunity actually lines up with the social opportunity. So we work with some of the great corporations in the world, uh, Coca-Cola, Unilever, Nespresso, and so on, but we don't ask them to be philanthropic. We take them a hard business case and say, this is great for your bottom line, and by the way, in executing this, you're going to take thousands or tens of thousands of of families uh, out of poverty in a way that they can stay out. And uh, so that is our approach to them. Uh, take an example of, uh, of a company which is sourcing uh, agricultural commodities. It used to be that uh, those companies saw that as a zero-sum game. If I can buy what I'm buying 10% cheaper, I win. Mm-hmm. The smarter companies have understood for some time now that if the family that is growing what you need to buy, you may be buying coffee, you may be buying mangoes, whatever it is you're buying, if that family that grows it for you is living in poverty, that is actually a core business risk for you. Because uh, it may not be there when you need to come back and buy it again next year. So you, as a business person, have a business interest in helping that family become prosperous. Yeah. And you just said a moment ago, tens of thousands. So my mind jumps to the fact that you have to assist with farmer aggregation to try to get all these farmers working together so there is a supply that's readily accessible to these major corporations. Absolutely key. We, we look at a, a lot of market failures and try to help solve for those. And you just mentioned a really important one. Um, and, uh, you know, when you think about a lot of crops that uh, consumers around the world enjoy, uh, many of them are majority grown by smallholder farmers. Mm-hmm. About 75% of the world's cacao for chocolate, uh, 70% of the world's specialty coffee, all grown by these small farmers. So they need to come together, what used to be called a cooperative, or we, we now refer to it more often as a farmer business organization, where they can come together, uh, they can then get better terms of trade, they can access inputs that they need to buy, and they can trade with some of these big multinationals because they get to the scale that they need to get to. Mm-hmm. And the third and final leg of the stool is to improve the business environment for small-scale producers. Tell us about that. Well, it's really looking at the whole market system. It doesn't make sense to help a farmer uh, learn how to grow more of a certain crop if uh, there is no good way to get it to market or no good way to connect them uh, with an exporter. So it's really looking at the whole business environment. Um, 
I can tell you a, a short story that, that illustrates yeah, the, the power of this. Um, many people don't know that Coca-Cola is the largest juice company in the world. Uh, Coke has been selling more and more juice to a growing middle class in the continent of Africa. But uh, it, they were uh, sourcing all of the fruit for that juice. They were importing it all. It was a classic sort of market failure. So mm-hmm. imagine this container of fruit coming into the port from India. They would literally be driven by these African farmers sitting on the side of the road mm-hmm. with fruit on, on wooden tables selling it. It was, a, it was a terrible failure. So we entered into a partnership with the Gates Foundation and Coke to address that. And we worked with about 65,000 small farmers across East Africa, uh, working on them improving their fruit production. Uh, we then worked with a number of fruit processing companies. So, again, the enabling business environment, it, it, because why was Coke importing it in the first place? Uh, it wasn't that they didn't care about African farmers, but they needed a certain volume and they needed a certain quality and they needed that reliability to, to do their production. So by having these farmers trained, by aggregating them into farmer business organizations, by enabling local processing companies to process to the standard that Coke need, Coke is now able to source all of the uh, fruit for all of the Minute Maid juice that it sells in Africa from African farmers. And those farmers who are selling to Coke saw their income from fruit uh, more than double in the in the, in the course of That's this. a fantastic story. And you really have to look at those different parts of the supply chain. Sometimes people tend to focus on the commodity, but there's a whole system that has to be in place if you're going to go from A to Z. And if a piece of it's not working, then you don't get the benefits you're seeking. Absolutely right. Hey, Will, in what ways is TechnoServe different from other international development uh, nonprofit organizations in terms of your composition of staff and the way you go about your business. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Denver. I have uh, spent my career working in international development. I was a Peace Corps volunteer uh, right out of college, and uh, so I've had the privilege of serving in a number of uh, really high-performing um, international development organizations. What is really different about TechnoServe is the, uh, the, the, the staff, the background and quality of the staff. Uh, most of our staff come to us from the private sector. Mm-hmm. Many of them come from top-tier management consulting firms like McKinsey and Bain. And so they bring a, a world-class ability for analysis. And uh, so what struck me when I joined TechnoServe uh, over five years ago now was the depth of analysis up front, the 60-page deep analysis mm. of the mango sector in northern Mozambique or the global coffee opportunity. Um, and that drives much, much better project selection and project design because it's based on a, a really deep understanding of these uh, markets and market dynamics uh, and, and local culture. So I think if I had to call out one thing, I think it is the business background of the staff and their ability then to to sit at a table with a Coca-Cola or with a 